you have two choices. You can stay or you can leave. You can say yes or you can say no. You can log on or you can sign off. You can speak out or you can stay silent. You can stand up or you can roll over. You are in a temptation situation. And it's your choice as to what you'll do. You see, the temptation situation is different for each of us. You know, we're all prone to different temptations. Recently, a survey asked the question, what's the hardest thing in life for you to control? The top response was weight. 38% of folks had a problem controlling their weight. 32.3% said spending. 16.9% identified fear. 10.8% had a hard time managing anger. Just 1.5% struggled with some form of substance abuse. I'm sure in reality those percentages are higher. But my point is, we're all tempted differently. The temptation situation varies from person to person. When was the last time it happened to you? You did a double take. You were lured in. You were baited. You had a decision to make. How did you fare? What choice did you make? The book of James is all about a faith that leaves tracks, that bears an imprint. Think of the letter as a walk in the woods, and James is our scout. He points to the hoof prints by the stream where faith has taken a drink. He shows us the tracks on the path where faith decided to cross. He reveals the matted down grass where faith has laid down to rest. Through the scout's eyes, we see that faith has roamed everywhere. It's crisscrossed this forest. And this is the impact that faith should have in our lives. Last week, we saw faith's impact on how we approach trials and manage money. But faith also affects how we'll fare in the temptation situation. You see, when a Christian gets tempted, real faith wakes up and kicks in and goes active and leaves tracks. Pretend faith is nowhere to be found. James begins his discussion on temptation by stating a positive. He wants us to know the outcome for those who overcome temptation. Verse 12, blessed or happy is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is a reward if you resist. The New Testament mentions five crowns or rewards to which we all should aspire. In 1 Corinthians 9, an imperishable crown goes to the believer who lives a disciplined life. In 1 Thessalonians 2, a crown of rejoicing is awarded to those who share their faith. 1 Peter chapter 5 grants the crown of glory to the faithful elder who feeds God's flock. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the crown of righteousness belongs to the Christian who eagerly anticipates the Lord's return. 
And now in James chapter 1, we find a crown of life. It goes to the folks who endure temptation. Isn't this ironic? A crown of life is awarded to those who avoid the path to death. You see, temptation is the first step in a long slide to destruction. Satan likes to blur blur the black and the white and turn them into gray. He likes to obscure the line. He, He wants to justify the compromise. He tries to provide us excuses and rationalizations. But according to God's word, the temptation situation presents a stark contrast. There's always a very clear choice. Either a crown of life or the path to death. When a person gets crowned, he goes from commoner to royalty. From a subject to a ruler. Crown a person and they're now part of the ruling class. And don't you want to rule over the passions in your life? Don't you want to regain some kind of control over your heart and your mind and your thoughts? I mean, don't you want to take charge of your destiny again? Aren't you tired of being a slave to that sin that dominates your life? You see, a person who wears a crown is the only person who's truly free. And you can receive a crown of life by learning to handle temptation. Now, certainly it's wise to avoid temptation when possible. But to think that we can avoid all temptation is pretty naive. We live in a fallen world, and there will always be temptation surrounding us. In verse 13, notice James writes, let no one say when he is tempted. Notice it's not if he is tempted. It's when he is tempted. At some point, everyone faces a temptation situation. You know, some people assume that when they become a Christian, they'll no longer be tempted. Oh, do I have a surprise for you. That's just not so. In fact, just the opposite is true. Temptation intensifies when we try to serve the Lord. I mean, once you choose sides, that's when the battle begins. As long as the devil has you under his thumb, he doesn't need to focus on you or worry about you. But the moment you decide to live for Jesus, suddenly you become a threat to him. He targets you for temptation. Reminds me of the pastor and the new believer. They were out duck hunting one day. And this novice Christian, he asked his pastor about this very issue, temptation. The pastor explained. He said, well, if two ducks are flying overhead and and you shoot both, you kill one, you wound the other, which of the ducks are you going to go and fetch first? That's when the old boy answered, obviously the wounded one. The dead duck ain't going nowhere. And that's Satan's approach to who he tempts. The person who's dead in sin is no threat to Satan. He ain't going nowhere. But if you love Jesus, you're out to be a witness. And you want to change the world. And you can count on Satan trying to set traps and spring temptations on you. You will be tempted. But when it happens, James tells us, Let no one say, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. You see, when I'm tempted, here's the first truth that I must remember. A responsibility rests with me. You know, I can pray to God. I can ask God for His help, and He'll give it. In fact, the Bible says God will even provide a way of escape. 
But in the temptation situation, there are choices that I have to make. I can't blame God. You know, I've heard people who were tempted, and they talked like God was supposed to reach down out of the sky, grab them by the belt loop, and drag them out of the situation. I failed because God let me down. God put me in a no-win situation. Wait a minute. James is clear. God never puts you in a no-win situation. People like to play the blame game. This is what the first man, Adam, did after he buckled under temptation and sinned in the Garden of Eden. He blamed God for his failure. He complained, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave of the tree and I ate. God, it was the woman's fault. But it's even more blame than that. He, he's the woman that you gave me. He blamed God. Did, did you hear about the obese fellow who, who bought donuts for the folks at work? Did it every morning. But when he went on his diet, his co-workers figured that he would stop with his habit. But the man enjoyed buying the donuts. He wanted to bless his friends. So one day he prayed. He said, Lord, if you want me to pick up donuts for the guys at the office, let there be an empty parking space right in front of the bakery. And sure enough, there it was, an empty parking spot. He found it on his ninth trip around the block. God must have wanted him to buy donuts. I hear that kind of foolishness all the time. If God hadn't have put that woman in the cubicle right next door to mine, I never would have committed adultery. If God had given me better parents, I wouldn't have done drugs. If God had blessed my business, I wouldn't have fudged on my taxes. Listen to this paraphrase, verse 13. Don't let anyone under pressure to give in to evil say, God is trying to trip me up. God puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. You'll never be victorious over temptation if you play the blame game. People blame their parents or their upbringing or their environment or their job or their lack of a job. You name it, they blame it. Everybody is a victim today. I read of a Tampa man who filed a lawsuit against his employer, Anheuser-Busch. He blamed his alcoholism on the company he worked for. Since all of the employees are given four cases of beer each month, in this man's mind, it was the company's fault that he had become addicted to alcohol. The lawsuit read, like the CEO of Anheuser-Busch was coming to the man's house every night, popping a top and forcing the guy to guzzle. You know, Flip Wilson used to blame the devil for his sin. You remember the Flip Wilson? Remember his line? The devil made me do it. I've heard Christians who make the same excuse. Supposedly they were possessed by a demon. They needed someone to cast out the evil spirit. Ridiculous. You just need some self-control. You need to learn how to overcome temptation and trust in the Holy Spirit. Once there was a little girl who was told not to eat the cookies. But man, she was hungry and those cookies smelled so good. And so she climbed up on the counter and she took a bite. Later, her mom scolded her. And that's when the little girl, she whimpered. She said, Mommy, I just climbed up to smell them and my tooth got caught. It's the cookie's fault. I just jumped off the platter and hooked on her tooth. Here's the first truth you need to recall in a temptation situation. I am responsible. My faith is being tested. And I'm going to have to make some right choices. 
James is clear. It's not God who tempts. He says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, here's where we get into trouble. It's when we're drawn away. The initial temptation is not a sin. You remember Jesus was tempted, but he sinned not. It's not a sin to see a gorgeous girl, even recognize that she's pretty. It's not a sin to want a drink. It's not a sin to try to make some money. It's not a sin to enjoy people liking you. But it's what you do with that initial awareness that can turn it into a sin. Martin Luther put it this way, evil thoughts are like birds. You can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. To dwell on a thought, to roll it around, to savor its taste, to enjoy its flavor, this is what turns it into a sin. Sin begins only when we yield to that temptation. James speaks of when you're drawn away by your own desires and enticed. You see, entertain a thought long enough and it'll flare up into a desire. Understand, temptation always begins in the mind. Our thought life is the first battlefield. You can't shield yourself from tempting thoughts. At times, they'll come out of nowhere. But we don't have to latch on to those thoughts. The downward spiral begins when we hold on to an evil desire. When you ponder what it would be like to have that extra money, what you do with it. Or what it would feel like to hold her in your arms. Or to be popular with the cool crowd and the advantages that would bring. You allow your desire to pull you from God. Play with a temptation long enough and you'll end up sliding down a slippery slope. You eventually reach a point of no return. You know, temptation is like buying a soda from a soft drink machine. Let's say it costs, a can of of your soda costs a dollar and you got four quarters. Well, you can drop that first quarter into the slot before you're even really sure if you're even thirsty. If you want a drink, you just drop in a first quarter. You can do the same with the second quarter and the third quarter. If you decide you want a bag of potato chips or your selection's not there, you just hit the button and all that money just will return right to you. You can even deposit the last quarter into the machine and still opt out. Just hit the return button and all your money will come right back. But once you push the select button, and that can starts sliding down the chute, Oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And you can start shaking that machine and beating on that machine. But at that point, you're going to get what you asked for. You're going to get it. The machine has already taken your money. You can't get it back. This is what happens in the temptation situation. Oh, it's a quarter here. It's a quarter there. We're okay. But eventually... You pass the point of no return. James describes the progressive nature of temptation in verse 15. He says, once you're enticed or hooked, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. You know, when aroused desires conceive, they have unplanned consequences. 
They give birth to unwanted outcomes. An evil thought inflames into a desire. And then that desire draws you away from God. And then one day you wake up in a place that you never wanted to go. With people that you don't even like. Suffering ramifications that you never planned. Looking into a future that's pretty hopeless. James describes it so vividly. He says, desire conceives and gives birth to sin. The egg of desire gets fertilized with the seed of rebellion and suddenly you're holding an active, crying, out of control, real life, baby sin right in your arms. You've given birth. What was once just a thought conceives and turns into a full-blown, real-life situation complete with all the accompanying consequences. You see, up until this point, you could have dealt with it privately, with minimal embarrassment. But it's hard to hide a baby. Now the sin is out in the open. Dealing with it is going to involve other people. It's a mess. I've heard it said, forbidden fruit is responsible for many a bad jam. And James would agree. And it can get worse. Because baby sins grow up. James warns us, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. If you don't confess it and deal with it and learn to live a life of repentance, that full-blown baby action is going to get worse. It's going to grow up into a full-grown life of sin, habitual sin. Addiction will occur. You'll be trapped. Steve Farrar writes, Sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. It's like sliding off a cliff. When you first feel your feet give way, you can still steady yourself. You can gather your balance. You can start to slide and still reach out for help and grab hold of that rail next to you. But there comes a point when it's a free fall and you can't stop on your own. As James puts it, when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Now here's James' conclusion. Temptation is beatable. Did you hear that? I hope everybody hears that. Temptation is beatable. But it's truth that sets us free. Anytime a person overcomes temptation, you're going to find some faith tracks. How do you resist temptation? Well, how are you forgiven? How do you grow in in your Christian life? How are you filled with the Holy Spirit? It's all a matter of faith. But it's real faith. It's faith that counts. It's faith that leaves tracks. This is why James tells us here in verses 16 and 17. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's faith that diffuses deception and that vaporizes the power of sin. Now understand, sin is enjoyable. Well, we'd be lying if we said it wasn't. Sin is fun. Sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be a temptation. And the initial pleasure of sin can sometimes cause us to forget its painful aftermath. That's why when the forbidden fruit gets dangled in front of me, 
when temptation teases and tantalizes and arouses a desire, it's in that moment that my faith needs to kick in. I have to believe in that moment that every good and every perfect gift comes from God. You see, it's easier to say no to temptation if there's a better offer on the table. If I'm focused on God's promise and His blessing, sin is always the easy way out. It's the quick fix. It's the immediate release. It's the escape from responsibility. But every good and perfect gift is from God. Understand this. Ultimately, all temptation is a shortcut. All temptation is a shortcut. When Satan tempted Jesus, he promised him the kingdoms of the world. Ironically, Jesus already possessed those kingdoms. But Satan's temptation was you can have it now. Satan was saying to Jesus, bow to me and there'll be no cross, no hurt, no pain, no waiting, no betrayal. And this is always Satan's temptation. You can have it now. You can have sex without the commitments of marriage. Oh, you can have money without hard work for an honest day's pay. Oh, you can have joy without the quiet of being alone with God. Oh, you can have power without learning to rely on God's Spirit. Oh, you can have character without the endurance that comes through trials. The great power of temptation, whatever form it might take, is that Satan offers it right now. That's his trap. That's his bait. That's the noose. And when you take it, you hang yourself. The Father God in heaven is the author of every good and every perfect gift, whereas Satan always gives gag gifts. The joke's on you. I heard of an impulsive shopper who took her credit cards and she froze them in the middle of a huge block of ice. That way, whenever she was tempted to make an impulsive purchase, she had to wait until the ice melted to get her credit cards. And that gave her a delay. It gave her time to think. Does she really need the item after all? You see, when temptation raises its ugly head, we need to pause and think. As James said, do not be deceived. It's the good and perfect stuff that comes from God. I love Psalm 84 verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We hear God's promise. No good thing will he withhold. But in the moment, in the heat of the battle, you've got to act on God's promise. You've got to believe that truth. In the midst of the temptation situation, you've got to have faith. God's promises are always true. James proves that to us in verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, why are we Christians? We're Christians by the will and word of God. We believed it. We took God at his word. We were saved by his promise. And you see, that's how we grow, by God's promises. That's how we resist temptation, by remembering and trusting in God's promises. James also calls the believers the first fruits of his creatures. Did you know that Christians are a new order of human being on the earth? We're alive to God. We're born again spiritually. We're different from the rest of this world. Do I believe in aliens? 
Absolutely. I am one. I'm an alien. I am alien to this foreign world. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I'm a light in a dark place. I'm a citizen of heaven living here on earth. Notice verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Oh my, this is not normal human practice. This must be alien behavior. Swift to hear, slow to speak. Boy, among the talk show generation, in a world of constant tweeting and blogging, people are quick to speak and spin, and they're slow to listen. I'm sure you've heard it before, but God created the human body with two ears and one mouth for a reason. He wants us to do twice as much listening as we do talking. Last week, Justice Clarence Thomas logged his fifth full year of silence in the Supreme Court. Apparently, Supreme Court cases, they, they argue for an hour, during which time the judges, justices can interrupt the lawyers and pepper them with questions. The average Supreme Court case gets interrupted by 50 questions from the judges. When asked about his silence, Thomas explained, you should allow people to complete their answers and their thought. I find the coherence you get from a conversation far more helpful than the rapid-fire questions. Imagine that. Allow somebody to complete their thought. What a novel idea. Did you hear about the professor who could speak multiple languages? He received the ultimate compliment. Someone said, the man knew how to stay silent in seven languages. You know, it's probably easier to learn a new language than it is to learn to hold your tongue in the one that you know. Every believer should be slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh my, here's a vital verse. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Next time I see him, I'm going to let him have it with both barrels. I can't wait to give that girl a piece of my mind. I'm just going to lower the boom. And what will you accomplish when you do? Oh, you'll feel justified maybe. You might get it off your chest. But will it produce the righteousness of God? I doubt it. Nine times out of ten, when we fly off the handle, we only make matters worse. Truth comforts and heals, but used wrongly, it can bruise and it can wound. I've learned the hard way. My wrath seldom produces God's righteousness. Spirit-led and temper-fueled don't yield the same results. We best handle situations if we're slow to speak and slow to wrath. And then James adds in verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. What great advice. Just lay aside your filthiness. Your wickedness, just get rid of it. Lay it aside. I love the Greek translation. The phrase literally means, get the wax out of your ears. For the last few years, every six months or so, one of these things that comes with getting older, I suppose, I've had to go to the doctor and get the excess earwax sucked out of my ears. 
It's not a very pleasant procedure. Stick this thing down your ear and hear that suction noise, you know, and, and it's kind of gross, especially when the nurse gets excited and wants to show you all that she's pulled out of your ear. Look at that. I can't believe that come out of, can't believe that came out of a person's ear. Look at that. Look at that. Please, I don't want to look at that. Bad, bad, bad situation. Whenever I get my ears all clogged up with earwax, here's how the symptoms start. Here's how I know what's happening. This is how the symptoms start. At first, I'm not quite sure what's going on, but this is how the symptoms start. I get mad at our sound man. I get angry with Mark Nichols. That's how the symptoms always start. Last time this happened to me, I came in here on a Sunday morning and nothing sounded right. I'm thinking, Mark Nichols has lost his touch. The old boy is just not what he used to be. This sounds terrible this morning. Every instrument on the stage is muddied and muddled. I just don't understand what he's doing back there. And then on Monday, my muffled hearing turned into an earache. And I said, maybe I need to go to the doctor. And that afternoon, I'm sitting in the doctor's chair getting all this earwax sucked out of my ears. And guess what happened the next Sunday? Mark wasn't such a bad sound man after all. That guy's really improved this past week. Wow, what a difference it makes to get your ears cleared. And this is what happens when we lay aside filthiness and this overflow of wickedness. The muddiness and the confusion, it dissipates. Clarity returns to our lives. We start hearing clearly again. We can hear God again. We can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speak to us. We, we can hear our wife's concerns all of a sudden. Suddenly, we become aware of our children's heart, what they're going through. Voices that we were oblivious to before, suddenly we hear them. When, when we lay aside all filthiness, and then James adds, and receive with meekness or with a surrendered attitude the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice it's not the spoken word, nor is it the heard word, but it's the implanted word. It's the word that gets down deep into your heart and gets connected with your will and becomes a part of your makeup in your life. It's the implanted word that saves your soul. New life occurs when we surrender to the intent of God's will until we when we welcome the changes that it brings into our lives. Have you done that? Have you welcomed the changes that God wants to work into your life? Real faith belongs to a person who wants a faith that leaves tracks. And this is why James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Real faith isn't just about good intentions. It provokes action. It's alive and active and aggressive. Faith leaves prints. We need to be careful that we don't allow a dichotomy to develop in our lives between our faith and our practice. There are some Christians that have a set of beliefs that they never act on. They're right in their theology, but it never invades their practice. For example, they believe that God's Word is inerrant. They just never read it or study it or pick it up through the week. They believe that we all need to be cheerful givers, but they're stingy in their offering. They believe that every Christian should be a witness. They just haven't tried it for 10 years. They believe that God hates divorce, but if my spouse bounces one more check, 
They believe that the church is one big family, but they don't have time to call a hurting friend. They believe that prayer is powerful. Oh, yeah, the power of prayer. Although they hadn't prayed more than five minutes in years. Some churchgoers have an entire belief system that never invades how they really live. It has very little impact on every day and everywhere. D.L. Moody once said, every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. In other words, a biblical faith is not just hearing or dissecting or discussing Scripture, but doing it. The Bible is a how-to guide. It's not just packed with abstract theology, man. It's practical instruction that you need to obey. I love the acronym, Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what it is. It's instruction that you need to obey. You know, in today's church, there is so much good Bible teaching around that we have spawned a whole class of professional connoisseurs. Kind of like wine tasters. Christians that just go from church to church to church sipping the teaching. They're going to sip it. Oh, that was sweet today. That was nice. Oh, yeah, that was deep. Just evaluating, but never applying. Like the overweight, uncoordinated sports writer who's never played a down of football in his life, yet he sits in the press box criticizing a quarterback. Now, now, I know I'm not the best Bible teacher around. I know that. But I try real hard. And I work hard at it. And, and almost always, I come up with at least a couple of nuggets. Especially when I talk to my wife ahead of time. She'll give me a couple of good things to say. And yet some of you, you know, you're always grading Pastor Sandy. That's what you do at lunch when you go back home. Boy, he was kind of off his game this morning. Did you notice that? He was a little pitchy. Rather than grade my performance, why don't you start applying God's truth? Take those few little nuggets you can get out of my confusion and apply them to your life. Try that. That might work. Boy, oh boy. James is afraid of a form of self-deception where you hear so many Bible studies that you start mistaking hearing for participation. Just because you heard it didn't mean you participated in it. To hear and to do are not the same. This is why God wants us to be doers, not just hearers of the Word. And then in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. He's saying, you, you walk by, you reflect, you, you catch your reflection in the mirror. And there's this big booger hanging out your nose. And you see it. But you never bother to clean it up. You don't do anything about it. This is the hearer only. He's always gaining information. He, he sees these issues in his life, but he just ignores them. He doesn't try to straighten them out or apply, apply any truth to his life. He doesn't clean it up. Some of us have heard Bible studies out the wazoo. 
All kinds of issues have been identified. Oh, God has showed us all kinds of things in our life, but we've never done anything to clean it up and to deal with, with what it is we've been hearing. We shouldn't stop coming to the Bible studies. We just need to start putting some of it into practice. He says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The law of bondage was the Mosaic law. It provided rules but without the power to obey those rules. But the new covenant, our covenant, is the perfect law of liberty. It not only provides us wisdom to live but the power to live. Which is all the more reason, my friend, why we need to be doers of the word. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. A faith that grabs hold of a heart will get control of a wagging tongue. We're going to talk more about this in chapter 3. Finally, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, if you want to see faith, if you want to see a tangible, touchable, visible faith, if you want to know what it looks like when it shows up, you look for two things. It always shows up in a compassion for the weak and in a desire for purity and holiness. That's what real faith will look like. For as far back as I can remember until the day she died, every Sunday afternoon my dad would drive to downtown Atlanta to visit his invalid sister and lived in a nursing home. Dad would go down, he would roll her wheelchair out into the common area, he'd buy her a Coca-Cola, and the two of them would sit down and they would chit-chat. Usually talk about the same things from old stories from past bygone eras. During the week, though, Anne would call our house. And she would call incessantly, always checking, making sure Olin was going to come and visit her this week. Your dad's going to come and visit me this week, isn't he? He's coming this week, isn't he? She was just so lonely. She just wanted to talk. But, uh, but us boys, us boys, we'd answer the phone. It was Ann again. We'd get so annoyed. Dad, it's Ann again. She's called for the third time today. That's the fourth time I picked up this phone. She's on the other end of the line. And my dad would always quote this verse in James. He would say, boys, pure religion visits orphans and widows. Here's the point. It's one thing to talk about God's love. It's really another thing to live it out. And just talking about it, just hearing about it, is no excuse for not doing it. It's not a substitute. You see, this is real faith. It lives it out in the temptation situation. In how we hear and when we talk and what we do. In all of life, faith leaves tracks. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we all pray 
We all ask you, Lord, to help us to take these words to heart today. We don't want to just hear. We don't want to just sit here smugly, quietly, and just hear these things and let these things roll off our back. We want to be doers of your word, Lord, not just hearers. We want to take these truths to heart in the temptation situation, Lord. We want to really believe in the moment when the heat is on. We want to believe. We want to trust you. We want to rely on your promises. We want to see that there's a better offer on the table. And we want to stay true to you. And then, Lord, when we would like to rail and we would like to vent our anger, Lord, help us to trust you, to be slow to speak and swift to hear, to trust you, Lord. That, that you are going to work in that situation. That our wrath doesn't produce your righteousness. Help us to remember that. And Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to, to live out your love. To care for the widows and the orphans. And to seek holiness and purity in our lives. Thank you for your word today, Lord. Help us to take heed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.